As we're continuing to preach through Romans, we come to what is, I guess, one of my favorite texts in the Bible. I'm always resistant to having, like, favorite Bible verses or life verses, but I love this passage. Let's pray and then consider it together. Oh, Father, I pray that you would build us up in your love as we sit under your word, that you would assure us of the care that you have for us. I pray that you would be with all of us sinners as we sit under your word, that you would be with me, a sinner, as I seek to preach it. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So when I was a kid, I have this clear memory of this one specific night. Um, a lot of you have probably have, have a memory kind of like this, but I remember I was like maybe five or six years old, and I remember I had just woken up from some nightmare, and, um, and I had gone in and woken up my parents to tell them about this nightmare, and um, what they ended up having me do is crawl into bed in between them and lay down and go to sleep. And I clearly remember this. And now as a parent looking back, I realize that probably the point of that was just that they really wanted to go back to sleep. But, um, but I remember as a kid laying there between your, my parents who were just these like giants, right? When you're that age, like your parents are these sort of immeasurably powerful, huge figures and just feeling safe, like nothing could hurt me. All kids, when they're really little, I think, have that instinctive sense, right, of safety when they think about their parents. Um, My kids often talk as if I could kind of beat anything and take care of anyone, right? You know, Kanan will come up with these scenarios where, like, bad guys with machine guns will assault our house, but, you know, daddy will beat them. And um, that makes you feel great as a parent, but it also kind of breaks your heart. Because you know there's a sense in which you can't ultimately provide that for your kids. And part of growing up for them will inevitably mean losing that sense of security. Sometimes losing it gradually, right? I mean, you just realize that while you appreciate your parents, they can't do everything and they can't protect you from everything. And sometimes it comes more harshly or suddenly as you have to confront the the hard realities of this world maybe even the hard realities of your parents. Becoming an adult is, in a sense, a story of learning that um, your parents can't keep you safe from everything. And many of us, then, I think, as adults, spend a great deal of our time trying to replace that sense of safety with something else instead. I mean, I think about, like, how we treat money, right? Money isn't inherently wrong. It's nice, and you can buy nice things with money. But for many of us, for me often, money represents a lot more than just, like, the economic tools to get nice stuff. It represents security and safety. If we have it or have enough of it, we feel like then nothing could really touch us. And if we don't have it, we dream about how we might get it because then we would be secure. And not just money, we can do that with all kinds of things. Oftentimes with contradictory things. Some of us, some of us surround ourselves with friends, right? Because we want them to make us feel secure. As if we had enough people loving and affirming and looking out for us, then we would feel safe. And others of us isolate ourselves from friends for the very same reason. Because we don't want people to be able to hurt us or touch us. Safety and security is the reason that, that some of us have families, and that some of us don't have families. I mean, I mean, it's the reason that some people buy handguns and some people want to ban them. It's the very same motive, right, for all of those people. This longing to feel safe and secure. 
And I'm not saying that, that, that those things are inherently bad, right? Money or friends or whatever, that's not a bad thing in itself. But that longing for security that we fix in it is a problem because, um, because we know somewhere deep down that they can't ultimately provide it. And so our hearts are always troubled and unsatisfied. And the reason that they can't ultimately provide it is because none of those things are big enough to really give that security that we long for. I mean, like we said, money's great, and it can give a kind of security for a season, but it doesn't protect you, right? Bad things can still happen in life, even if you've got all the money in the world, and you can still get sick, and in the end, um, right, rich and poor alike, while some might have fancier tombstones or urns, are all going to return to the same dust. And that's the reality of anything in this world, that we might marginally gain or marginally lose security, but that ultimately we feel like we can never be secure. And Paul, in our passage this morning, is really trying to speak to that reality for us. For Paul, that longing for security has to be answered in God and in God's love. That He's saying, if you want to find the kind of safety that your heart longs for, that God is ultimately the place where you're going to find that. So in verse 31, at the beginning of our passage, Paul says, What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? But of course, Paul doesn't mean by that that nothing bad will happen, right? I feel like sometimes we hear those words and that what we, that's what we think. But he spent, there's all kinds of things in Romans that he says are against us. In fact, he's going to list some of them in just a minute, right? He's not saying that nothing will be against us. What he's saying is that even if everything on earth is against us, if God is for us, we can be secure. And that's because for Paul, God is big enough to provide the kind of security that we long for. But we're kind of getting ahead of ourselves a little bit. So let's back up and just start walking through this text, all right? Paul says in this text, what he's saying is that God stands with us. God stands with us against all of these things that threaten us. And that's how we find security. First, he says, God stands with us against our sin. God stands with us in the face of our sin. So look at verse 32. Paul says, he, do not, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? So first Paul says, God did not spare his own son, but he gave him up for us. So our security for Paul is starting with Jesus, and it rests in the reality that God sent Jesus to die for us. Let me just mention something about that. I think some people sometimes struggle with that because it sounds kind of sketchy. Uh, Like, we hear that and we're like, well, why didn't, I don't know, why didn't God come himself? Why did he send his son? There are people that get uncomfortable with that language. But look, I mean, so God isn't a human being, right? He's using human imagery to describe what happens. Um, and it's true for human parents that it's not necessarily the ideal if I send my, you know, my kid to go die, right? Um, that's kind of parenting 101, I guess. But um, when we talk about God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we're talking about something that does have these three persons in relationship, but they're also united in one. So what we're saying is that God sent himself, right? Came part of himself as a human being to suffer and die. So this isn't like divine child abuse or something, the way some people make it. 
But that's what Paul says is God somehow came, sent a part of himself for us to die for us. And then he says, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? How will he not work for good in everything else, too? And this is actually a hugely, hugely important idea. If you're like me, right, you ask God sometimes, why? Why did this happen? Why is this thing going on? And often we don't really know the answer. We don't, right? Sometimes Christians are happy to tell you an answer, but but, but we don't know why those things are happening. And Paul isn't explaining why those things are happening here, but what he is saying is that of all the possible answers that there are, there's a set of those answers that we know can't be true. It can't be true that God doesn't care or God doesn't love you. And the reason for that is that God came and suffered and died. Is Jesus. I mean, Jesus was God. And he could have had all the comfort and glory of just sitting up in heaven in peace. But he didn't. He came into the world. And he came with the express purpose of being tortured and murdered. He gave himself up for us. So while I have no idea why certain things are happening, it can't be because God doesn't care. Because he cared enough to bleed and die himself for this world's salvation. But let's keep going, all right? So Jesus came, and then verse 33, So who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. So there's this rhetorical question, who will bring any charge against those that God has chosen? We talked about last week, if you weren't there, we're not going to go through it all, but this idea that God chose and fixed his love upon you, if he's saving you, from the foundation of the world. So who will bring a charge against you if you're chosen like that? And then he says, because it is God who justifies. Justification means declaring us righteous because of the work of Jesus. It is God declaring you righteous. And so he's saying, who's going to overrule that? And keep going in verse 34. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, he's at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. So who is the one who condemns? No one. That's the point of the question, right? That no one stands to condemn us. And that's because Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God. Jesus who died for our sins. Jesus who rose for our new life. Jesus who right now intercedes for us. That means who pleads our case. He's sitting at the right hand of God in that position of authority. So let me, let me just try to back up. Paul's using all this language that's kind of judicial language in his day, like a courtroom. And this is what he's trying to picture. He says, imagine that like you're standing in that courtroom of the universe, right? And you've got charges against you. All of us do. Right? We're all sinful. We all hurt people and hurt the world in a lot more ways than we even appreciate. There are accusations against you. If you want to, from other parts of Scripture, you can even picture Satan there accusing you, right? He's pictured as the accuser. He's standing there, the lawyer for the prosecution, right? That's the image where you are, but then here's the thing, Paul says. Look up at that judge's seat. Look who's sitting there, and it's God. And not God in the sense of some dispassionate, uncaring, distant thing. But God, who chose you to be a part of his family. God, who from eternity past put in place this plan that you might be declared righteous in Jesus. That's who's sitting in the judge's seat. And next to him, because I guess we've got like co-judges or something in this courtroom, is Jesus, 
right? Jesus, who came and suffered and died for you, um, that he's sitting next to his father. And when the devil accuses you, Jesus, he smiles at you, right? And then he leans over and whispers in his father's ear. And his father smiles at him. And then they look at you, right? That's the sort of courtroom you're in, Paul is saying. And if, that's, if you're there, how do you think that trial is going to go for you, right? Are you fearful in that place when the judge is your loving father? And the co-judge is Jesus, who died for you? In that courtroom, you don't have to be afraid. Which is the point of this first part of our reading. That God is on our side against our sin. One of the reasons that I at least wrestle to feel secure with God is my guilt. I can worry about what God is doing in the world because I'm afraid that God is going to punish me. Because I feel like on some gut level that maybe I would deserve that. And sometimes I would deserve that, right? We can't skip that. We're not saying that I don't deserve those things to happen. But what we're saying is that God doesn't deal with me in terms of what I deserve. He deals with me in terms of what he has done in Jesus. That is an incredibly important idea. In our world, when our consciences are heavy, when we're worried that, um, that bad things might happen because of how we've lived or whatever, what, what we're told to do is just say, oh, you're fine. Don't worry about it. Do better next time. You're fine. But the problem is that there's no security in that approach, right? It, just trying to convince yourself that you're fine, right? I mean, in the first place, who says, right? Me? I mean, like, maybe, but, but you know, if you go talk to the guys on death row, they would say that they're fine too, Right? We can all think that we're on the right side, but you can't be sure. What's beautiful about Christianity is that it doesn't try to tell you you're fine. In fact, it says you're not. But what it tries to tell you is that Jesus died. What you're trusting on is, is not that you're fine, but that even though you're not, Jesus died. And that's what matters. And that provides an incredible source of security. Because it doesn't depend on us. The outcome of my life, the verdict of the courtroom, God's posture towards me isn't resting on me. It's resting on Jesus and what he's done to save us. And so that means that we can be secure. So Paul says God stands with us against our sins. And then he goes on to try to give us more assurance in the next few verses. And he says that God stands with us against our circumstances. God stands with us against our circumstances, too. So Paul promises God's love, and then in verse 35, he says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? And there's something really interesting about both of those questions, but start with the second one. It's a list of all these circumstances. Some of those are about suffering for being a Christian, and some of those are just about suffering in life in general. But the thing to recognize about that question is Paul is not saying that you're not going to experience those things. In fact, if you look at the way the verse frames it, he kind of assumes that some of us will experience some of those things. That's actually why he cites verse 36 then. Um, He says in verse 36, As it is written, For your sake we face death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. And that's a quote from Psalm 44, which is this psalm of lament. And Paul seems to be quoting it to stress that, like, yeah, these, these kinds of things happen, even to Christians, even to faithful saints, that, um, 
that he's saying, look, these, these Old Testament saints, they suffered so much that they, they, they spoke this way. So Paul's saying that those circumstances might well confront us as Christians, but he says that doesn't change the answer to the first question, which is who shall, shepherd, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Because the answer to that question, of course, is nothing, right? Nothing. None of those things can separate us from God's love. And that leads Paul to say then in verse 37, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. That, get, that verse gets quoted a lot in kind of Christian pep talk settings. I don't know if you've ever heard it or been in those, but you know, you are more than conquerors, they say. And the application is like, you go ask for that raise. You go run that marathon. You're more than a conqueror. And so that's not quite what the verse is saying, because if you walk through it, first Paul says, in all these things. And those are the things that he lists in verse 35, hardship and loss and danger and nakedness and the sword. That last one, by the way, means getting killed, right? Paul's saying, even though people might chop your head off, you are more than a conqueror, which is maybe a little less like saying, you're, a more, than, you're more than a conqueror, go ask for that raise and you'll get it. And maybe more like saying, you're more than a conqueror, even if you ask for that raise and you get fired instead. Um, but the reason for that then is the last part of the verse, through him who loved us. And that's God and Jesus, right? It's referring back to 35 again. He's saying, even though those bad things happen, we are somehow more than conquerors because God still loves us. And here's what I think that means. Here's how I think Paul can say that. We often think the conquest that we're getting promised, right, is sort of a conquest that that means we're going to just be delivered from hard things happening. It means that we're just protected from all the bad stuff in the world. And God does provide protection in different times and in different ways, but it is not the kind of protection that promises that bad things won't happen. Instead, the promise of this verse is that God will support and sustain us even in the midst of those things, and that when those things are ultimately over, God's love will still keep us there with him. Even as we struggle and suffer, God is there helping us, and Jesus is loving us, and the end of the story is secure that we will still be standing with God at our side, even when those troubles have passed. But the end of that story may wait until glory. That's what's hard to face. Psalm 18, which Paul's kind of like referring to here, asks the question this way. He says, The Lord is with me. I, am not, I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? What can mere mortals do to me? Well, the answer in some ways is a lot. Paul lists the stuff here, right? They can give you trouble and they can persecute you and strip you naked and stab you with swords. But the point of that psalm, and Paul's point here, is that even if that happens, the story goes on. That God's love is still fixed on you and God is still with you. And after even all of those things is resurrection and eternal life and union with God and peace And maybe we get a taste of that now. Maybe we get delivered from something in the present. That happens sometimes, and that's beautiful. And maybe we aren't. But God is with us right now. And God has promised us a future that is secure. And that means that we are secure. That we will stand as God's children, immortal and sinless in the end. And no circumstance of life can touch that. The worst they can do, Paul says, is kill you. And God has triumphed even over death in Jesus Christ. 
So Paul promises that God stands with with us against our circumstances. And then he blows that up even bigger in the last two verses. And it's not just our immediate circumstances, but God stands with us against the world, Paul says, against everything. He stands with us against the world. I just want to walk through these last two verses because they're so beautiful. So let's start in verse 38 and work through verse 39, right? Remember, Paul's going to say that none of these things can separate us from God's love. That's the end of 39. And so he says, neither death nor life can separate us from God's love. So nothing in this life can separate you from the love of God that's fixed on you. Nothing that happens while we're alive can change that love he's fixed on you. And dying can't change it either. Neither angels nor demons can change it. So these are the supernatural powers of the universe, right? And that's, that's a whole big topic that we're not going to dig into. But what Paul is saying is even if the hosts of hell came out against you and the armies of heaven marched out against you, that even if all of that came against you, it could not move God's saving love that is fixed on you. Neither the present nor the future. So nothing that happens right now Nothing that will ever happen in the world. And that's true of the world writ large, Paul's saying, that, 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 that no matter what happens right now in this world, whatever's happening in the headlines, no matter what may come, right? Whether the future is like, is like some Star Trek utopia or whether it's like some post-apocalyptic like wasteland. No matter what is happening or will happen. And that's true of us in our personal lives. No matter what's going on for us in the present. No matter what we do in the future. It can't change God's love that's fixed on us. Nor any powers, Paul says. And that's his language to describe both kind of supernatural powers, but also like governments and political power. I mean, look, a lot of Christians in our country spend a lot of time worrying about powers, right? We stress out about the government or make compromises or whatever. But God is not affected by what is happening in the headlines or in Washington. Nothing that this country does or any country does can change his love that's fixed on us or this plan of salvation that he's working out for us. That, that the government could, the government could like, I don't know, mandate Christianity, right? And mandate prayer in schools and stuff. Or it could like ban Bibles and try to kill all of us. And God's work and God's love won't be changed. I'm going off. I mean, do you know the country in 2016 where the church grew the fastest? Like, it's Iran, okay? <laughs> like, tens of thousands of people became Christians and hundreds of churches got planted in Iran where they are literally trying to kill them. Well, the church is kind of anemic and struggling here where we've got our, our, you know, our lobbyists and our councils on biblical whatever. That should tell us something about how God works in the world. And that's a little off the rails, I know, but that's Paul's point, right? He finishes it with neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation. None of it. Nothing in this world. Nothing that has ever been or will ever be. Not all of it together. None of that can change God's love that's fixed on you. And the salvation that he's working for you. He's working for us to save us and make us like Jesus. Supporting us in the present. And he will stand triumphant in our size at the end. We said at the beginning that all of us as children lose our sense of security at some point when we think about our parents, right? And sometimes that's because of failure of their love. Because they fail to love us. They don't love us like they should. But sometimes, even if they do love us, 
It's just that they can't ultimately keep us safe. It's one of the hardest things for me as a parent, in a sense, knowing that as much as I might try to do and as much as I might love my kids, there are limits to what I can protect them from and limits to the security that I can provide. What Paul is saying, though, is that both of those things are true of God. That God does love us perfectly and that he is powerful enough to stand with us no matter what comes against us. Is your picture of God big enough for that? I mean, I feel like we spend all this time in our world just trying to shrink God down and make him relatable and safe and tame and approachable. And that makes us feel good in the moment, right? Because it makes us not feel worried about him and feel comfortable with him. But it leaves us terrified in the long run because that God is too small to provide the kind of security that you and I need. The God of the Bible is mighty and wild I mean, when Israel comes out to meet with God at Mount Sinai, the mountain is covered by lightning and fire, right? That's the picture of God's presence. When they come to arrest Jesus and Peter, Peter tries to, you know, pull out his sword to stop the guards, Jesus says, put your sword away. But not because it's futile. Jesus says, look, if I wanted to, I could just like call down armies of angels and they'd all be destroyed, right? <laughs> like, it's okay. I mean, when, when scripture pictures Jesus returning at the end of things, it's a, you know, a rider on a pale horse. And, and, and it says that all the armies of the earth, the kings of the earth come out with all the, I don't know, like the, the, the nukes and the army rangers and the jet fighters and stuff. And Jesus just speaks a word and they're annihilated, right? That's the kind of power that is available to us in our God. He is good and he loves us and he is strong. He's not tame or safe, but he is on our side. And that means that all of our true and great enemies, whether it's the world or sin or hell or death or the devil, he will ultimately destroy them. Because next to him, there is nothing. So God stands with us. God is on our side in love. No matter what the world or our circumstances or our sin might say. As I thought about that, I want to try to shift imagery a little bit to sum all of it up and shift back to the image that we were using last week. Last week, we we talked about this idea that God chases after us, that he doesn't just sit in heaven and wait for us, but that God is chasing after you in love. He pursues us from before the foundation of the world until eternity. And there's this And Paul is saying, when he says we're secure in God, he's saying sort of like something like that, that God chases after us and he's strong enough to chase us until the end. Um, And as I thought about that, I found myself thinking about this really great theology book about the gospel, although it's kind of allegorical. um, And I don't know that you people know, but one of the best books I know about God's love, and that is The Runaway Bunny by Margaret Weiss Brown. And here's how that book starts. Once there was a little bunny who wanted to run away, so he said to his mother, I am running away. And if you run, his mother um, said, I will run after you, for you are my little bunny. Have you read this book? So it proceeds, it proceeds with, um, with the little bunny coming up with all of these different scenarios of escaping his mother's love. He says, I will become a fish in a stream. I will become a flower in a hidden garden. I'll grow wings and fly away like a bird. And what will you do then? And over and over, his mother gives him this answer. She says, well, if you become a fish, then I'm going to become a fisherman, right? 
If you become a flower, I'll be the gardener. If you become a bird, I will be the tree that you nest in at night. Over and over, no matter where you go, she says, no matter what you do, no matter what happens, I'm going to keep you safe in my love because you are my little bunny. My kids like that book, and they love it because it speaks to that childlike longing for security, right? That a parent's love seems to provide. No matter what the mother is saying, I will always be with you and care for you because you're mine. But here's the thing. I read that book sometimes and I think, you know, the mom can't actually keep those promises. Right? I mean, rabbits are terrible gardeners and fishermen in the first place. Um, And they don't turn into trees either. Um, Right? I mean, like, the mother can't ultimately, even though she's expressing her desire, she cannot provide that because she's not powerful enough. Paul is saying is that God can. That he can keep both sides of that promise. That's the point of all of this. That God loves you and he's fixed his love on you because you are his. And he will chase after you. And even if you sprout wings and fly away, right? Even if you turn into a flower in the hidden garden, he is strong enough to pursue you even there. That even though death and hell in the world would rage against you, God will continue to pursue you in his love. Because you are his. That is the security that Paul is promising in this text. If you're in Christ, that security is yours. Let's pray. Father, you are strong and you love us. And those two truths together give us hope. You've covered our sin. You pour out love on us as Jesus earned it. And no matter what may come against us, though the world may rage, though the darkness may raise its head, your love cannot change and will never change. You are strong enough to stand at our side against it. We give thanks for all of this. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Would you stand with me and sing?
It's good to worship with all of you guys this morning. Please join us after the service. There's adult discipleship class at the end of this hall in classroom one. There's fellowship time with treats and stuff. Make sure to introduce yourselves to each other. But every week we end with a benediction, right? And I usually don't comment on it. That, that means a good word or a blessing, right? That's what the word means. Um, and it's one of the like blessings spoken in scripture. But I think sometimes we hear a benediction and think that it's a wish, right? That we're saying like, I hope, I wish that this would happen to you. That's not quite right in scripture. What a benediction is, is a a proclamation of blessing. It is a saying that this is the blessing that you have in God. And so we say the Lord bless and keep you and that stuff. We're not saying, man, I wish that this would happen or I hope that maybe this will happen. What we're saying is that this is true. You are blessed in this. This is your blessing. So go out underneath it and the assurance of it. So receive the Lord's blessing. May the Lord bless and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up the light of his countenance on you and give you his peace today and always. Amen.